Hello, and welcome to Simplifying Shelter Behaviour with me, Tom Candy, the go-to podcast for tips and tricks for working with animal behaviour in a shelter or rescue environment. Hi everybody, thank you for joining for another episode of Simplifying Shelter Behaviour. This week we've got Laurie and Lacey, and we're going to be talking about how our operations teams at centres and how our behaviour teams can work well together to achieve the best outcomes for our animals. How are you both doing? Fabulous. Doing great. We're really happy to be here today and talking about shelters and shelter dogs. So we'll just start off then. Can you just tell us a little bit about kind of the relationship between the two of you when you were working at ASPCA? Sure. So I was a professional uh, responder with the behavioral uh, sciences team for the ASPCA. So my role was to go out uh, as uh, for usually a 10 to 12 day rotation. And my role was as a behavior lead. So I was helping to oversee the behavioral care um, and status of all the animals that were in our shelter at the time. And I also oversaw a team of um, two to three uh, behavior assistants who were um, all certified dog trainers. Uh, and we were doing behavior modification um, and running play groups. And these were dogs that were all coming from um, cruelty cases or neglect cases um, and sometimes dog fighting, sometimes puppy mills. Uh, and so I, I loved the role. We did um, behavior assessments for the animals uh, for placement. Uh, and so a big part of my position as the behavior lead was collaborating with the other departments to make sure there was a smooth ebb and flow um, of the daily operations between our departments. And that's where Lacey comes in. Yep. So I was the shelter manager and um, my role was to, at times, depending on where we were at, set up the shelter completely, um, working with behavior and medical, kind of having an idea of what's coming in, figuring out where we're going to put these animals. Um, and then from there, keeping that shelter running as smooth as possible. Yeah, brilliant. So it sounds like as well, like particularly in your case, that relationship was so important because it sounds like it's going to be really varied. Like you don't really know what's coming day to day which is really difficult, isn't it? Yes, uh, I would say. And oftentimes before we would be getting a group of animals, uh, depending on the population, we might have a general idea of what we'd be expecting to see behaviorally wise. But oftentimes we really didn't know until the day that we would be getting them. Uh, so, um, I know that the, as a behavior team that I was working for, um, they would also send people out, uh, alongside the sheltering team, um, and the field response team to start collecting as much behavioral data as they could out in the field, uh, to give us a heads up when those animals were coming in as far as what to expect. And what that did also is allow the sheltering operations team to know, um, we had modular kennels. So, um, you know, do we need to build, uh, you know, five by fives or do we Mm -hmm. need to build co-housing units or do we need to build um, transfer kennels so we could move dogs without needing to touch them um, if they were touch aversive. So that we didn't always get that 100 (laughs) percent, but at least, you know, if we had a general idea of the population and their behavior coming in, we could try our best to adjust for that ahead of time. Yeah. and, And in the field, I spent a lot of time in the field purposely again, because I wanted to see what we were getting in the shelter and trying to relay that information as much as possible back to everyone at the shelter that's waiting for us 
we'd mark their kennels in the field. You know, this one's definitely going to need to be put immediately, like in a quiet pod. Mm -hmm. It, you know, trying to plan for that animal before they even get to the shelter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? Like any chance we get to kind of give ourselves that little bit of a heads up is so useful. So what sort of situations were you kind of going into and getting animals from when you were on these like adventures, shall we say? (laughs) They were adventures. That's a great way to put it. Um, A lot of dog fighting. Uh, The dog fighting ones were always a crapshoot because the intel we would get from the FBI or the U.S. Marshals was like, all right, we got about 100 dogs on this property. (laughs) And we get there and we go through, we do the assessment, we do an immediate triage, make sure there's not an animal that needs immediate medical care and start counting. It's like, um, there's 150 dogs here. (laughs) And then we also have like five pregnant moms and they're going to have babies. So I'm calling back to the shelter. I'm like, all right, guys, we're going to have to tear down and rebuild. And that's exactly what happens is they're scrambling to, you know, we've got the shelter beautiful, ready to go. And then boom, we've got a plan for 50 more dogs and we do it. I mean, it was, there was a beautiful symphony of chaos, (laughs) you know, and, you know, we all came together in the field and in, in the middle of the seizure, we will all like have a quick meeting, like, all right, this is what we're going to have to plan for. And behavior, what do you think? Medical, they're always okay as long as it's, you know, if there's a medically challenged animal. So it's constantly thinking on your feet, but I think we did really well working together Mm -hmm. and had that shelter ready. And we had, you know, behavior stuff ready to go. And yeah, it. so on my end, as the being the, the end person where the animals would come and then get to the location where we were was getting this intel kind of coming in. And if I was there on my rotation, like I said, I was usually 10 to 12 days a month. And then there were other folks that would come in and take over for me. And we had transition days and whatnot to pass along information. But um, yeah, so why would be like, okay, well, we know that they're coming in with X amount of animals. Like there's 10 of them that can't really be handled or had to, a catch pole needed to be used to catch, which is usually a last resort op- option. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you need to get the animal quickly um, and, you know, onto the next role or the next place. Um, so we would just make sure we were preparing enough enrichment that we had enough um, toys and things to put into their kennels to prepare ahead of time to make that transition um, as stress-free as possible. Um, we would put crates in the kennels uh, for the dogs who were fearful. So they had like a hiding area initially. So there's like a lot of stuff that we would do to prep ahead of time also um, for those animals coming in, in addition to continuing the daily operations and care Mm -hmm. for the animals that are already in the shelter. So it was a lot of, a lot of coordination. um, And I think from that experience, um, I've been able to take that and go to shelters that I'm working with now and, I see all the communication deficits and one of the things that I'm trying to do and what I have done at some shelters uh, since working with the A, which has such a, you know, they've been around for a hundred plus years. So they really have a lot of those things worked out, um, which I was able to learn from. And now I can kind of go and say, Hey, I see that we're having communication challenges here and here. Like let's bridge that by implementing X, Y, Z. And so that's been a really, I did that for about five years. It was a wonderful learning experience, um, and getting to help behaviorally rehabilitate Mm -hmm. the animals that coming from these situations was amazing (laughs) to to see that progress. Yeah, definitely. 
So we'll we'll swing back around to the sort of communication stuff, but can you just tell me a little bit more about that kind of module kennel design? Yeah, I will talk all day. I'm such a nerd about um, kennels. Like, I will talk to you about different floor surfaces for an hour if you ask me to. <laughs> Just catch me at a bar with some whiskey and knock <laughs> uh, all day. I'll just talk about nerdy kennel things. Um, what I love so much about it, and I walk into brick and mortar shelters now, and I'm like, cool, because um, we use Lucky Dog panels, but I've used other types of modular panels um, where you can just purchase, I don't know, as many panels as you want. And you're like, well, I want to build a play yard. So, yeah, there's you know, they're, if you they're have, magnum panels, yeah. if you want to like, yeah, if you just Google magnum panels, you can kind of get an yeah. idea of what they look like. Um, but yeah, you can build a 20 by 30 space. Um, what we did uh, for one puppy mill case where we need new, where we ended up having to do some co-housing because the stress level of the animals being separated mm -hmm. um, was so stress inducing for them. We were able to build little play yards with like five by fives all around it. So we would feed them separately and house them separately at night. Um, but during the day, the animals could cohabitate in that space in groups of five or six. So that was like a very cool example of something you could do with modular panels. Mm -hmm. um, if we had dogs who were, um, you know, unable to be touched uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it was fear or there was a serious concern for aggression towards humans, um, we had we could build the panel so we could shift the animals back and forth so we could build two 10 by 10s to give that animal a little bit of extra space and then have the door swing open and let them cross from side to side for cleaning. Um, it just gives so much versatility mm -hmm. um, and ability to adapt to the needs of the animals that you have and uh now I walk into brick and mortar shelters and I'm like can we just like take down this wall and like you know I'm like yeah. like what if we what if we just take all these kennels out and and do you know it's it, it's just it opened my eyes I think to the possibility of what shelters could do if um if we were thinking more animal forward versus um the traditional design of like the indoor outdoor kennels mm -hmm. um and stuff and uh you know I think so yeah, so that that's my feelings about it. I I love it. Yeah, I mean it sounds amazing. Like the most recent uh, site that the organization that I work for mostly built. Um, you know, we've tried to incorporate lots of different types of kennels. So we've got some kennels that have outdoor spaces, um, some kennels that are like three times the size of a normal kennel so that we can have groups, um, smaller groups if we need it. But I love that flexibility because like you said, often if you're dealing with hoarder cases or, or dog fighting cases or things where you don't actually know what sort of things are coming in, that must just be an amazing resource. Yeah. And I, I, I would say too, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, we saw these types of dogs in masses mm -hmm. obviously coming in at one time, but when I'm looking at our shelter dogs here in the Northeast, I live in Vermont. Um, we have a lot of old traditional kennel setups here and the challenges, behavior challenges we're now seeing with a lot of the animals in our shelter, sheltering systems, um, is they need that adaptability and we don't have it. We have very traditional, you know, kennels. So I, I'm working with a shelter down here um, where they've already started a project of knocking a hole in like the, they have two kennels with the, you know, concrete um, in between them and whatnot. And they're going to be punching holes in them and putting a, another guillotine door so that they can um, 
be able to open it up so the animal has more space. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going to be inserting some panels within the kennel that's going to have like hidey holes for animals. So if they need that, uh, they have that. And, um, you know, also to co-house dogs uh, if they have fearful dogs Mm -hmm. that come in. Because we do see these animals Um, Not necessarily from these horrific conditions, but they have similar behaviors or similar fears or we're under socialized and we're doing, I think, a great service by by changing the the way that the shelter looks um, now. So uh, I'm excited to see the future of sheltering if we keep incorporating more of these behavioral aspects to it. And you have to be open minded. Yeah. You know, coming in. There's no way you can cause a house a dog. You know, we don't know these dogs. And that when we learned, we learned a lot from that puppy mill case where we were like, okay, let's see how they do together. And I mean, in a day, we took those pods and broke them down yeah. and rebuilt these co-housing little setups. And it was fascinating to watch the behavior change in these animals mm-hmm. because they they've already lived together. So why would we? break up that family Mm -hmm. just because we're afraid of what's going to happen or what could happen. We're all there. We're all trained to respond. We know what to do if something were to happen. So let's, let's just do it. Let's try it. And it was beautiful to watch these animals completely come out of their shells and change because they had each other, each other. And that dog that they'd slept next to for years in that puppy mill. And when we had dog fighting cases, we would do complete drawings of of the scene and try to keep the dogs that were chained up next to each other in the same pod because even though they're fighting, they're not fighting on their chains, but they know they're, you know, that dog that's next to them. They're used to seeing that dog next to them. So why are we going to change that up on them? Get them in, keep them as the environment is close to what they came out of until we can take the next steps with them. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So if we swing back around to the kind of communication and relationship side of things, uh, what do you think is that benefit of having the two teams working so closely together? So many. So many. so many benefits. <laughs> For example, like we just talked about um, with the co-housing, with the um, the puppy mill dogs. So um, the behavior team acknowledged immediately, you know, because we had a typical protocols, get dogs separate, assess their medical, mm-hmm. make sure there's no transmissible diseases, um, you know, quarantine procedures. So you're coming from like an operations perspective and that's what you do. And that historically that's, you know, the best thing that you can do. Uh, these animals specifically were so traumatized by the experience of being taken from where they were and brought to our shelter and then separated uh, that we the behavior team was like, we have to we have to do something different. Um, these animals are are struggling, catatonic, uh, you know, just not doing well. I've never seen so many stressed animals in my entire life simultaneously, and it was very hard. Um, so we all got together and we're like, how can we do this in a way that is safe? makes the sheltering team feel safe, makes medical feel safe, and allows the behavior team to come in and really assess which dogs can live together, um, how we're going to approach Mm -hmm. that. Um, So we ended up calling in extra behavior reinforcements. The ASPCA ended up sending in people from a variety of shelters 
to come and help us really sort through the population to make sure we're going to group these dogs, these five dogs. We need somebody to just sit here for an hour and watch them interact and Mm -hmm. make sure there's not going to be an escalating fight. We're going to slowly add in some toys and sit and watch that for an hour and make sure we're not seeing um, resource guarding. Um, You know, and that took a lot for the shelter, I think, and medical team to be okay with that because, like Lacey said, historically that was not the way that things could be done. But because we had built this relationship over a over a good amount of time of building trust with each other, Mm -hmm. our judgment and our teams, uh, we were able to do something super out of the box. And then now it's done more consistently and it's so beneficial for the animals. So um, we're both not out there (laughs) anymore, but I do know that a lot of what we did out uh, between the times that we were there, uh, what was that like 2017 to 2021, something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, you know, there, there's still stuff that was learned that's still continuing to this day. So it's yeah. pretty cool. That case was very instrumental in that specifically. It really was. And we worked really, really hard, really hard to, and when we both left, it was bittersweet because we had built such an amazing program there. I mean, yeah, that was, and I even, I mean, we've even had responders and, and other members of the leadership team say we've never seen medical behavior and sheltering work so well together mm-hmm. that it was, and I worked really hard on that. We all worked really yeah. hard to make sure when we came in there, egos aside, you know, we respected each other's opinions and experience and we talked through it and we met about it every day and always put those animals first. Yeah, Always put the animals first. And it just, it just worked. And it, and, you know, communication, all, all the ways we have to communicate now, communication is still always the number one issue. And it's just, just so important to just to sit down and talk about it. I mean, you're all there together. Let's just do it. And what can we do? Okay. If we're not getting along, you know, let's, let's bring somebody else to kind of help mediate what we're saying. We're probably both saying the same thing. We're just not hearing it. And I've had times to be like, this is what they're trying to say. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was trying to say. And you just go out there and do it and then you just love it. I think that's such a key point about kind of knowing where each other are coming from, isn't it? Because we, even when we're working within the same, same team, we often forget that everybody's pressure is slightly different. So the thing that I come across the most is like behavior. Maybe you don't think a dog is quite ready for rehoming. They want to do a little bit more, but then the pressure's often on the operations team because, you know, it's often based around. Yeah. The the one thing that I feel lacks at most shelters that I've been to, to help do consulting for is the lack of like just having conversations mm-hmm. together as teams on da- a daily basis. So one thing that we did um, through the ASPCA that I really loved was they do daily, um, you know, medical, we we called it MBS. It was medical behavior sheltering. Uh, so we did MBS rounds every day. Um, most of the time, if we happen to have a low population occasionally, um, we would maybe move it to every other day. But for the most part, um, we would meet every day at, you know, 1130. Uh, and we, the three people would walk around and get eyes on every single animal. And we had boards uh, for each of our pods, which would be similar to a kennel area. Because uh, we had usually between 10 and 12 dogs per pod. So it would be like a, you know, a normal kennel mm-hmm. uh, in most shelters. Uh, here in the Northeast, we have much smaller shelters than maybe like Los Angeles or something like that. But 
you know, we, we had a lot of dogs, but so we would go to each pod and the daily care staff or the kennel staff technicians, whatever you would like, or and volunteers that were working with the animals doing the daily care cleaning could write any medical or behavior or sheltering concerns up on the board. And we would go look and see if uh, uh, something had been written about an animal. And then we could go talk to that person immediately while we're doing rounds and say, hey, I saw you write something about uh, this dog uh, is pacing in their kennel. Can we? Can I talk to you about, like, when is that happening? Is it just before you're giving them food or is it throughout the day or is it maybe when the broom is being swept by their kennel? Mm-hmm. And we could get those details, um, and then we could talk about it and be like, okay, well, Hodag was one dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a dog named Hodag, um, which was named after a a weird creature in Wisconsin because it was from a Wisconsin case. And there's, <laughs> I, you can Google it. I, 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 there's apparently a statue. It was very weird. <laughs> so they named the dog um, after this statue and Hodag had a, had a lot of kennel stress um, and had started doing a lot of stereotypic pacing in front of the kennel. And it was triggered by a lot of movement in the pod. So first thing in the morning when folks are coming in to feed and clean, Hodag would just start with the pacing and it was escalating to um, like starting to tip her head up in the corners. And we, I'm like, we obviously we need to come together to figure out a solution for this dog. So she would get fed breakfast. Um, and then what we came up with was we created like a separate um, area uh, off to the side of the shelter that was a lot quieter. And so behavior would come. We'd take her out in the morning. She would go hang out in this other area and get like a lot of enrichment. And so that decreased that behavior. Um, and then when she would come back to the pot in the afternoon when it was a lot quieter and uh, there wasn't as much daily care happenings <laughs> happening, uh, we started seeing a decrease in that behavior. So, yeah. um, and it was better for her quality of life. So that's like an example of us coming up with a solution. And then where medical came into that too was, can we do anything pharmaceutically wise mm-hmm. uh, to see if we can decrease her stress? So I feel like she was then put on some medications that would help with that. And so it's very important that the those three departments have that conversation while looking at the animal. So it's not just an email going back and forth, mm-hmm. um, you know, or it could be like a text message, at, uh, you know, but I'm like, when you're sitting there looking at the individual animal, it kind of brings back that every animal in the shelter is an individual and has individual needs. And we should be taking a lens on every single one. Um, and this dog could be pacing for this reason and this one for this. So it's, it's just important to have those conversations um, because, you know, I might say, I don't understand why medical won't put this dog on on medications, um, but they might have a reason that they can't. And so those conversations would come up super fluidly when we were doing these rounds. It's like, well, we wanted to do that, but we can't because X, Y, Z. So what other solutions mm-hmm. can we talk about together? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that happened really fluidly. Yeah. Um, and, and we used a lot of kennel signage. So yeah. that was also very important, especially with the pities. They loved to go after brooms. You know, and you know, you're sleeping in between kennels. So the kennel side is was like there were business card holders and we had color coded, like behavior was um blue. You're talking about the handling colors? Well, no, just like no brooms or oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it had how much they got fed, if they had a special diet. So each department had their own color card. And yeah. we would put on there, you know, has to go to the X Pen first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um is like you know doesn't like brooms so we'd have to figure out another way to sweep in between yeah. their kennel like things like that it's also nonverbal communication but it was so important to go up and read that kennel signage cuz that could change every day yeah but don't 
you know, to add on to that too, don't discount your kennel staff because they're the ones that are in and out with those animals every single day. Every day. I mean, we know these animals because, you know, we're there every day for like, you know, Mm -hmm. eight weeks at a time. But these people, they're there. They know these animals and don't ever discourage them for speaking up and saying, I don't, I think something's not right today. I can't quite pinpoint it Mm -hmm. because I've seen people come in all gung-ho and like, well, I'm the behavior person, so I don't think that's a problem. I don't want anyone to ever feel like they can't bring up an issue or communicate an issue because it's it could be nothing, but it could be like, wow, you just caught an animal who we we had a kennel staff, we were getting ready to leave, caught an animal. She's like, mm, something's not right. Yeah. Medical came over, that dog was bloating. But because that person knew that dog's behavior... And that something seemed off. Yeah. We were able to, that animal would have died overnight yeah. in that kennel. It's, yeah, the daily care thing, the, the kennel techs, you know, they're, they're called something different at every shelter <laughs> I've been to. But I can't say as like, uh, for a behavior person, even if you have kennel technicians who are not versed in dog behavior, or don't have all of that knowledge or anything, they do know the animal's personalities mm-hmm. and their normal daily routines. So when they come to you with a concern, I take it pretty seriously, mm-hmm. pretty quickly, because I'm 99% of the time, they're pretty spot on about something. Even if surface level, you can't see it, they know so well. So another example was the, um, we had those three dogs that were the house dogs from that one case. Mm-hmm. And she had she had been with us for, what, two months? Yeah. One day she was acting funny. I'll tell you. You can tell the story. Do you remember? Keep talking. Yeah. So she started acting funny, and the kennel tech um, daily care person was like, this is weird. She's usually very up and alert, and she was an American bully. So she was like... <laughs> You know, like first thing in the morning, she's like ping ponging off her kennels. There was two other ones uh, that all came from the same case. They lived in the house together uh, and she was just not right, not acting right. Um, Turns out that she had a blockage of a corn cob in her stomach. That's right. Yeah. And it had been there for a long time and it finally had worked its way to cause a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Because we were like, you know, we do the, we, the medical staff. So this is another collaboration thing is we made sure that all the enrichment we were giving was digestible and appropriate. And like, so the thought of a blockage would almost never present itself because we never had anything that would give a dog a blockage. And she had been with us for two months, but she just wasn't acting right. The daily care person really pushed medical came over something's wrong. Um, then they had to rush her to the hospital and they found a corn cob in her stomach that had just been in her digestive system since before she came into our care. Yeah. And it was just like, holy shit. Like, yeah, (laughs) nobody would have thought there would have been a corn cob in this dog's stomach. Um, and if that daily care staff hadn't, you know, caught that, um, immediately, uh, you know, that's it, you just, we never would have Mm -hmm. even known. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was an immediate could have been a death situation for her too. So, yeah. Um, so those daily care staff, I I will swear by it. Um, I just see them get discounted a lot, and volunteers yeah. get discounted a lot. Like, oh, this volunteer thinks they know so much, or um, oh, that volunteer. I've had you know so many comments made, and I started my career in daily care and volunteering mm-hmm. uh, in 2008, and <laughs> you know where I am now. And I, it's just you know I I was so passionate at that time, not that I'm not now, but and doing it for nothing and no money or yeah. very little money. And to me, it's a very ignorant thing to do is discount those folks, um, 
you know, and it makes it drives me nuts. So I'm here to advocate for them all day, every day. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the, I want to get on a soapbox now. <laughs> you know, my big thing is, is education. Yeah. And when I was at the A and when I was the executive director um, at my local SPCA, I wanted all of my staff no matter who you were, you could have been the janitor all the way up to, you know, my assistant director, education, education, education. I, if you want to learn more about your job, then I will take, I will figure out a way for you to learn more about your job because you want to be there. You know, nobody in animal welfare makes a lot of money. You know, we're not getting rich on any of this. And if somebody's there to make $10 an hour because they love dogs and they want to learn, then I'm going to help them learn. And they always want to learn about the behavior piece, which I love because then that's helping the dog, the human, the adoption staff, everyone that's working, you know, fighting for that animal to find a home. All of these pieces work together. Mm-hmm. You, you, can't, you can't have just behavior. You can't just have medical. You can't just have sheltering because we're all have hands-on taking care yeah. of these animals. So if we're not talking about it, there's something very, very wrong. Yeah. And where I've seen some of this go wrong, like a good example is a shelter that I went into recently to, uh, this past fall to do some consulting, uh, had a dog in their care. Uh, they hadn't properly assessed this dog. It, its history is a little wonky because it was a, a homeless person's dog. So we didn't have all the specific information. Um, you know, we always try to get as much information ahead of time before an animal comes in. But this this one, we got some, but wasn't, you know, full. Um, and it had skin conditions. It he, Ace had skin conditions and, um, medical team jumped right on fixing it, clearing all that up, which is great is what we should be doing, but without coordinating, uh, a pathway plan for behavior. Um, and oftentimes when you're assessing behavior, you do want the animal feeling well, Mm -hmm. but they ended up going through, I cannot remember the specific details, but they ended up going to like see a specialist and doing like all of this stuff before they even assess the dog, uh, behaviorally. So, you know, the dog ended up started as she started feeling better, started hard barking, um, went into a home, did some some stranger danger type behaviors. They put him in a foster home um, and he like froze and made really hard eye contact with a guest coming into their house. They brought him back to the shelter um, and then they called me in to see if I could come and help with this dog. And they had a bunch of others at that time. Um, and I did a dog dog test with him and he was very dog aggressive. I, you know, very good at kind of determining is this a reactivity is this a fear issue or is this actual true dog aggression um and turns out that he was not going to be safe with other dogs by any means um so the shelter had spent i want to say five to six thousand dollars on treatment for this dog already due to skin conditions going to the specialist um, on special food doing all of this which is amazing but it turned out that he needed to be behaviorally euthanized and wasn't safe to place in the community. So because of that lack of collaboration going on at this shelter, which I've been able to rectify a bit, which is great, and we're still working through some stuff, um, those resources that were spent on ACE um, could have been spent on many more animals in their care as well. And it's it, it's so important that every dollar in a shelter mm-hmm. is being spent with like true discretion um, because we're fundraising for that money. You know, we are, a lot of our shelters here, especially in the Northeast are nonprofits that are community funded and not given any municipal money. Um, so you're taking 
public money that people have donated and putting it into one dog um, that ultimately wasn't going to be placeable anyway because department's not communicating properly. And so these are the things that I see and I want to help change <laughs> because I want that extra $5,000 going to yeah. pulling more friendly social dogs that we can help and place into communities and families that really want that dog that's going to be the, not a problem for them. And I want to help those dogs and I want to help those dogs get into homes, but instead they're being euthanized because there's mm-hmm. no space um, in the South. And, you know, so there's just, it's like a layering complex big picture issue, but that's one of the things that I, I feel shelters can grow and learn from. So that's an example of non-communication and, and how that can detrimentally impact, I think, the shelter. But if you're not and if you're not communicating, that dog is a perfect example, then yeah. you're not all on the same page. Right. And then that creates rifts in, in your friction. staff because well, I don't understand. You're putting all this money into the dog, so you must think he's worth saving. And then, you know, behavior is trying to tell you, well, this is actually what's going on. And it's like, well, why are we doing so much? You know, now that we put all this into this dog, we have to find him a home. Yeah. Then I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on how you communicate <laughs> all that to the community. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, we haven't even talked about that because with the lovely way to communicate via social media now is killing shelters, like yeah. literally killing shelters and staff because of the communication and how it gets out there. And you've got staff members like, putting things out. It's it's insane. Like we absolutely should do a podcast on that, by the way. Yeah, you're definitely right though, aren't you? Like that overarching theme is that if we're not on the same page with dogs, whichever department we're working in, things are just not going to be as efficient as they can be. And yeah, we've definitely had it with veterinary where they're like, oh, we're gonna do this operation and it's not even been about the money, but we're like, oh, we don't I don't know if that dog is going to cope with six weeks of kennel rest, like, and then you can have a conversation about, well, is is foster suitable? And if that's suitable, you know, you can bring in the foster coordinator or whoever looks after that side of things. And I definitely think that that walk around idea is, is something that I've seen work really well as well. And it draws in what we then kind of went on to talk about with um, including the other members of staff as well. Because I think if the staff members see management and the behaviour team and, and veterinary out walking and looking at the dogs, they know like, oh, yeah, I can raise things because like they're going to listen because I think often what can happen is management end up in the office coordinating everything which is definitely the role but then people feel exactly like you said like oh I'm a bit worried about bringing this up or I don't really want to bother them but if they see us out and about it kind of prompts that discussion um so there's so many benefits of of doing it the right way and like you said the fallout can be massive both from welfare finance and everything else a contentious conversation with your staff, get on the same page with your, your, your leadership team. And then you just bring everybody in and you talk about it yeah. and you let them have the time. Even if they don't agree, you let them have the time to share their thoughts and their feelings to know that and listen to them. And you may come to the point still where say, this is, this is a decision we've made. This is why you need to back up your why. And it's not just because I said so. Mm-hmm. You have to explain to them why you came to that decision. And that's where additional training comes into play. And it's it's so important. I mean, it just, I believe in over-communicating because especially in animal welfare, I don't think you can communicate enough. 
Yeah, Tom, to your point, I I just had that. It's so funny that you say it the way you eloquently just said that about being walking walking around. And one of the biggest complaints that I see, I just had this conversation with the shelter I'm doing consulting with right now because everybody's kind of doing their own siloed rounds. Mm-hmm. Medical's going out and doing a round in the morning. Um, the kennel supervisor is going around and kind of checking on the dogs there um, because things have gotten really busy. They're short staffed. So their kind of rounds got broken up. And I'm like, but your staff feel like when they see you walking around, it it makes them feel as though they're looking at the the sheets that have the notes that the staff have taken. It shows the staff visually that they're taking their notes seriously mm-hmm. and that they're actively proactively addressing things. Um, and like like you said, like that's just so important for the the people who are taking care of these animals every day to know that they're being listened mm-hmm. to is like such a critical piece that I think gets forgotten quite a bit is um, these people are usually your lowest paid workers and they're honestly physically and mentally place. doing some of the hardest work interacting with these animals every day. It sucks to care for an animal for a month and a half. And then it, it ends up having to be euthanized. We had a mama dog that came in recently and uh, we needed, she was very dog aggressive um, but we needed her to like have her baby, have her babies and raise them. And so the staff spent two months taking care of this dog and they're like, she's so nice and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I'm like, we're forgetting though, that guys don't forget mm-hmm. <laughs> that this dog is ultimately going to have to be euthanized because she's not safe for the community. She, her, she was taken by police because she had broken through a window twice to go after another dog walking by on the street. She was not a dog that would be, placeable back in the community by any means um had sent two dogs to the hospital like public community dogs and um it was really hard for them you know and and it not you have to remember to recognize that yeah. these, these kids and i say kids because they're usually between 18 and 25 working in the kennels it's you know they're the newest they're the freshest they're the most passionate and they don't have the boundary lines set for themselves yet to take on a lot of the emotional burden mm-hmm. and um, we're we're supposed to be there to support them through that because we've all been here now for a long time and have created our own ways. Mm-hmm. Some healthy, not so healthy. I'm covered in tattoos of dogs. <laughs> like, you know, I think that's a healthy outlet, but it helps me cope with a lot of the stuff I do. Um, but these kids don't have that yet. Um, so anyways, I just and so important. Gosh, I could talk about this forever. You made me could just go on forever. You made me think about, you know, uh the conversation about behavioral euthanasia. Yeah. You got to know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the A, we, we had, I we loved that process. Developed a, a protocol, you know, and if we, the decision was made that we're going to euthanize an animal, we started to let staff know probably four or five days before the actual date. And we had kind of a, a checklist that we went by, like, okay, so today we're just going to, Talk to everybody. We said, you know, we're going to have a euthanasia discussion. If you do not want to be part of it, you are welcome to leave the room. Um, We never forced that conversation on anyone. We discussed who we were going to euthanize. We discussed why. And we also gave them an opportunity to come speak to us one-on-one. We showed them the evaluation videos. We showed them all the notes, all of the things that came into the decision and why we ultimately made that decision. And the decision was never made by just one person. We had a committee and I, you know, those conversations will sometimes go on for hours just because we want to make sure if we're going to take an animal's life that we've exhausted all options. Mm -hmm. And it's so very, very important to also think about what's going to happen after, 
you know, those, those caretakers spend that last day with those animals. I mean, we let them flood them with enrichment and all of these wonderful things and then send them home and we take on that task. And it's just as hard for us to, to have to be part of that. But I, I think as leadership and ever since I've been in a leadership role, you take that burden on. We, we made it so that when they came back to work the next day, there wasn't that reminder. Oh, now you have to clean the kennel that we just took this animal out that you've loved on for a year. You know, it's, yeah. There's so many nuances that (laughs) you can, I mean, just the impact is so strong, but the active is so small. Like you just, oh, this is why I loved working with Lacey. (laughs) And I think that, yeah, I think the thing is like everything that we've talked about, the communication is so important in the moment and for that individual, but it also then just builds the foundations for any conversation you're going to have in the future. So like we, what you were saying earlier about making sure that everybody's on the same page, we're then going to set those right expectation settings. And like you said, like if people really understand the decision, the next time that conversation comes up, it's not necessarily going to be any easier, but they're kind of more aware of what's happening and what, you know, what led to that point, where if you don't really keep if you keep all the cards to your chest and there isn't that understanding of the process whatever it is if that's about euthanasia or why a certain dog came in or whatever happens it's so much more difficult then to have the next conversation because you were like you'll be like oh well veterinary disagreed with me last time and and, you know that feels bad and then I don't want to have that same conversation and it's not necessarily about agreeing all the time but like you said getting on the same page just means that you know, you can air it. And I definitely think, like, um, I work across multiple centres and the centres that I, you know, enjoy going to the most, it's not often because I have the best time, it's because it's teams that I feel like I can have open conversations with and we know at the end, you know, we'll get a resolution. Um, And it's just so important. And Lori and I were talking about this morning. I don't know if you're seeing it over there, but we're seeing, you know, record numbers of euthanasias here, you know, numbers that we haven't seen in five years. And it's, it's frightening to all of us in this business because it's like, oh my, are we going backwards? Like, how are we, how are we now going to fix this situation? Because a lot of it is behavioral issues. These animals are coming into the shelters with the economy as well, but it's, a behavioral issue that they don't have the funds to help hire a trainer or, you know, put them on medication because some of the really good medications are very expensive. I mean, right now I work at a vet clinic and if I didn't get the discount, it would be very difficult for me. Yeah. And I think we're just in that sort of perfect storm, aren't we? Where you're right. We seem to be getting a lot more dogs who are coming in and they're different to dogs we've seen before, whether that's because of like missing out on socialization with COVID or for other reasons. But we do seem to also be seeing a lack of people who, who want to adopt dogs like that. Um, and that just means, you know, depending on your organizational policy, like we do have to work a lot harder before we get those dogs into homes, bef- you know, cause that might be more pre-work than we needed to do before. Like I definitely remember, remember times before where if you had dogs who you know didn't like being left you could do a little bit of the center but you could normally find somebody who could then take that plan forward um whereas now i think you know we need dogs who are pretty much ready to go and and be easy dogs um and it's a massive shift that 
yeah, we haven't really... It ha- seems to have happened really quickly, so we haven't really caught up in terms of developing the behaviour side yeah, of things. Yeah, like uh, I have a few theories about why this has happened. I know the pandemic definitely... Started. Whatever was kind of going on, just kind of force-fed, like, they're... Obviously, the, even having a lot of behavior programs in our shelters here is still new within mm-hmm. the last few decades. You know, it used to just be like the San Francisco SPCA. There was Dumb Friends League in Colorado. Yeah. Like Boston had one. But really, the incorporation of even having a behavior department in shelters, um, I don't know about over in the UK, but in America, I think it's still a very new concept. And most of our smaller shelters, like I have here in the Northeast, <laughs> you know, like are just now starting to have like one behavior person on staff who may or may not be actually credentialed. And what's behavior? What's behavior? <laughs> and what is, you know, so. Oh, it's, I taught the dog to sit. No, that's yeah. <laughs> so like really starting to like incorporate that at a time where it is so critical to have behavior folks, because um, I think that the, there's been a big push over the last 15 to 20 years of reducing length of stay, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, saving them all is such yeah. a big motto that comes out, um, and we, we those who are in behavior know that all is a very tricky yeah. <laughs> verbiage to use because there are animals that are not safe, and so at the same time, we want to keep it, we want to adopt out as many animals as we can. That means that we're retaining animals for longer. We'll, to work on those behaviors while reducing their length of stay. And we're also trying to make really good decisions about keeping our community safe. So shortly that requires an influx of behavior and behavior departments. And a lot of our shelters here are not ready for those conversations, um, you know, because they'll bring behaviorists in or behavior consultants in and the behavior consultants like, Whoa, this dog is some issues that like, we need to really hash mm-hmm. out. Like if this is placeable and that coming from the sheltering side where their goal is reducing length of stay and adoptions. And we're like, yeah, but like, th- like this dog, if we don't send it out with the appropriate plan in place, it's going to get bounced back and returned three or four times. Like we have to work together to make sure that we're all on that same page, and yeah. that's the challenge I'm seeing right now um, here. Yeah, is is that piece and the, and the difficulty these departments are in having those communications. I think sometimes it's it just makes that slightly easier, doesn't it? Because. What we might do before is look at sort of long stay and think, right, well, there are priorities, but we almost have to shift and think, well, actually, this dog is, you know, like a six-month-old puppy, but it's grabbing quite a lot. So it might take, like, quite a lot of time investment, but you're probably going to get, like, a quicker return. So we might need to say, like... I don't know, like Fido's welfare is okay in the kennel, so we can take our effort away from Fido for two weeks, really focus on this puppy who we know we're probably going to find a home for, and go back to Fido when we're done. So having that openness of the conversation and saying, look, like, you know, I've sat down and we've done, like, traffic light systems of priority, and... It's so you know it's the dogs you need the most, but sometimes it's the dogs that are going to be those easy wins. We can put a little bit of work in and get them out the door. So being able to have those conversations regularly massively impacts on how people feel. You know how because it's like it's hard, isn't it? If we've got dogs who are sat there for months and months, and we need to sort of prioritise having those nice wins and making the difference for those animals in our care. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard too because like the dogs that require the extra work are the ones that all the 
daily care workers end up spending more time with yeah. the dog is struggling and they get really attached. So not having a plan for that dog and just being like, well, somebody will come along eventually is mm-hmm. like not the solution. And, and one of the things that I think like what you said about your the, the gr- traffic light system or green, yellow, red is I'm, I really want to help shelters that ha- gather as much information as they can on that intake process. Even if it's being brought in by animal control, how did that animal act when you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, what was the environment you took them from? What was the behavior of the dog getting them into your truck? And then they go to a, here at my shelter here, they go to a holding So like whatever it is, like getting that information and being like, okay, we know this dog might have some challenges with, um, being carried or picked up or has a sensitivity around its neck or they had to use a catch pole like this dog's going to come in probably traumatized Mm -hmm. like let's make a plan as soon as we have like that information um to help that pathway from the get-go so like yeah if this puppy despite being coming from like a dumpster fire (laughs) this situation is coming in and like hey everybody like you're the best i love people and dogs you know that dog can probably go for adoption as soon as it's cleared through medical you know whereas if we know there's a dog that's going to be a struggle or have struggles rather coming into the shelter we're like let's take our time with this dog let's give it three or four days to just kind of decompress and let it chill before we do any Mm -hmm. further assessing and you know, we can kind of make that pathway so the animals can move through the shelter in a way that makes sense for them. And we're looking again at the individual versus this like standardized, uh, they get, you know, they get their intake exam immediately. And then it's like 48 hours later, they get their behavior assessment and then they get put on the website, but only after X or this or that. It, it, it Like when you are doing things in an SOP format that's so structured, it's nice to have that structure, but there's got to be that communication and flexibility for those departments to come together and say like, okay, we have this dog coming in uh, who's going to present potentially some challenges. What can we do? Can we start them on Trezidone day one? And like, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, so like, I, again, like talk about so many examples of that forever, but you're right. Like that is su- such an important piece. And I'm just so happy there's folks out there that are like really acknowledging that and, and oh, so yeah. cool. <laughs> so cool. And don't be afraid to ask yeah. why. And, you know, I ask why a lot she does. and a lot. Of, that's why like you come in hot. No, I'm just, I just want to know. know. I'm just so passionate about it. I think sometimes I, you know, you come off as, oh my God, she's a big monster. No, I'm just like so excited about the, the positive changes we're going to make. Yeah. And, you know, I worked with a shelter after a hurricane and had been there multiple times and they used catch poles for everything, puppies. I'm like, why? Well, that's just because that's how we do it. I'm like, well, do you even own a leash? So I literally took my leash off and I grabbed that animal control officer and he was like a little sponge and he's like, okay, so what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to use a leash to move this dog and showed him how to safely move a dog on a leash. And it was the most profound moment because when we went back the next year, he's like, Miss Lacey, Miss Lacey, I use leashes now. I rarely have to use the catch pole. I was like, that's amazing because look, you didn't need to use it. Yeah. And they came in with this little chihuahua and they're rocks were so high. Like I had to use a step stool and I'm five, eight to get this chihuahua out of the top. And the officer, the a new officer, she went, I was like, no, you put that catch pole down. She's like, well, the dog's going to bite you. I was like, well, can I have 30 seconds to show you that the dog's not going to bite me? And I just grabbed a little lead, slipped it over her head. She was just, she was a scared pregnant chihuahua that was pulled out of, you know, a flood zone. And I just muzzle wrapped her just a little bit. 
so I could get her. And I pulled her out and she peed all over me. <laughs> and she's like, okay, I think I like you. And didn't need to use a catch pole, grabbed her, put her in her kennel. And everyone was like, wow. I was like, it's not wow. But if you've never been exposed to that. Yeah. And it was, it was what is great to, if you have to go back and you see that, that little bit, something that we think is common sense to use a leash, you know, catch pole is going to create more behavior problems has such an impact on every animal that's coming in into that shelter after. Yeah. Definitely. And it just brings it all back, doesn't it? That communication just allows you to plan much better. Everybody's on board with the plan. You all know what's happening. And then everything just... So we've talked... Yeah, so obviously we've talked a little bit about, um, like, doing walk rounds is a really great way. But just before we finish, like, can you think of any other, like, top tips that you would give people around improving that communication? Top tips. Yes, I I can think of... Radios are always good. Yeah, we use radios a lot, and every shelter I've, I've gone to that doesn't have radios, I tell them to buy them, and we work out a communication system there um, because if an animal's having a true emergency, you can call for help mm-hmm. right away. Um, another thing is I, in most of the shelters that I've been in, another tip um, is I feel like a lot of shelters underutilize their... Um, uh, software program. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I know shelter love is out there. There's pet point chameleon. I don't know if they have different ones over in Europe, but, um, most shelters I walk into, I love automation and a lot of these programs, you can enter notes or memos and it will send out emails that go to everybody to like alert them of things. Like there's a lot of ways to utilize reports, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just so much that you can do with your computer software system. Um, and I am always like, give me admin access yeah. yeah, <laughs> and let me help you set this up. And also if you just have your best tech savvy person and meet with the operations, like the leadership team and say like, what do, what do we want this program to do for us? Most of these program teams have, yeah like per people who will like, oh, I'll show you how to create a specialized report for mm-hmm. XYZ. Um, so, you know, I do think if, I do think that that is something I see missing a lot. So I'm also very passionate about operations and logistics, which is probably why me and Lacey did things so well collaboratively is I love to make things more efficient and easier for everybody. So I don't know if you have any other tips, but those are my videos are great. Mm. And they are great to, you know, a great communication tool as well to support Positives or negatives? Um, oh, gosh. Oh, I know. Um, yeah. I think frequent reminders about speaking in objective terms when you're describing yes. behavior, teaching the animal care staff how to do that is so important. And I've gone to a shelter and done one 45-minute presentation on how to speak objectively about behavior. And the behavior notes in the system from the staff changes drastically. Mm -hmm. And once they kind of start speaking in those terms, they start talking to each other in those terms. And then people are describing what they're actually looking at and not 
how they think the dog is feeling or, you know, uh, more of those anecdotal terminology. So that's a big one. Um, and then cross departmentally, when you're reading a note, everybody's reading the thing in the same exact way. Yeah. It's not. Don't be afraid to, uh, not advocate, advocate for yourself, advocate for your thoughts, your feelings, your opinions, just never, I mean, never give up. I mean, that's, that's so cliche, but like, if you, corny. it is corny, <laughs> but if you, if you feel strongly and we all do, we all will have that one animal we feel strongly about, but just don't come at it from an emotional standpoint, you know, try to take the emotion out of the work, which I know is hard, but if you're trying to relay like if I was trying to relay to Lori, you know, this is why I feel this animal needs this kind of enrichment or that kind of enrichment. And sometimes those are the conversations that you have. I mean, it seems silly, but, you know, I really think they need to have a bully stick. Well, there might be reasons why, but if you just go at it, they really like bully sticks and it's not fair. You're giving them a bully stick. Well, take that emotion out and be like, hey, Lori, I think Hodag needs a bully stick and this is why. She's pacing. I've noticed if I give her this kind of treat, she likes it. It calms her down. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Instead of, Lori, don't, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I know, I, now I start babbling, but I, yeah. sometimes we get so passionate about things, we just yeah. don't know how to present it yeah. and yeah. learn good communication skills. That was Learn good communication skills. Yeah. Yeah. I have two more hot takes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I've been actually wanting, I keep like having this thought throughout this whole process and haven't brought it up at all. But I think that the moment where you are, you walk away from a conversation and you're like, are we on the same page? Or I didn't like the way that that ended. Go back to it. Go back to it. Yeah. Um, Because it's those little things. If you let the little things fester, um, it will bubble to a point in which there's so much underlying that when you finally get to the point of having that really crucial conversation of why aren't we getting along or why can't we collaborate together, it becomes this big explosion. Yep. Um, this is another challenge I see quite a bit is that folks can't just say, you know what, can I clarify that we're on the same page, you know, and use non-accusatory um, language. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm not sure if I got everything you're saying or can I repeat back to you what I heard you just say to make sure that we're on the same page. And having those conversations can be really hard, especially when you're under a lot of pressure and you're just like, oh, I can't believe that so-and-so. And like really, again, like Lacey was just saying, removing that and having those conversations right away and not waiting. Um, I think that's really important for the long-term trust building and communication among teams. And then following that, my last hot take when it comes to communication and the importance is like the leadership team really needs to buy into that mm-hmm. because if the t- leadership team is not communicating well, your staff will know. Absolutely. 100%. 110%. And that tension between the leadership team will trickle down and you will before your very eyes in a very slow and methodical way have a big blow up explosion and then half your staff quits the leadership team 
dissipates. And now you've got a whole new shelter of new folks that need to relearn everything. And I've seen that happen a lot in this, this field. Yeah. So that the leadership buy-in is so important that those teams are willing to have those difficult conversations and then move on and then trust that everybody there is for the there for the right reasons. And if they're not, that's a, the person on the very top needs to be able to recognize that somebody is not here for the right reasons or isn't in line with the rest of the philosophy and address that before that festers too. Um, so there's a lot I think leadership can take from this conversation mm-hmm. uh, because I just have also seen that trickle down. So um, that is probably the most important part is that philosophy. Yeah. I, I definitely think you're right there. And I think that is the key with all this communication stuff is we also just need to be aware of, of everything else that everybody's doing. And I love that idea. You said like, Oh, well, I really like operations stuff. Well, I think to be like really great at behavior working in Charlotte, you have to be aware of, the world you're working in like it is completely different to behavior in any other aspect and same for rehoming like you know if you don't have that kind of understanding of where the behavior team are coming from you're just going to fall flat on every conversation so i think all of what you said there works so well together to kind of finish um because of all those things like and i love that idea of yeah don't be afraid to kind of take a minute and then go back into conversation not accusatory um and just take it easy and using that objective language and just a little plug uh, we're going to be talking about objective language more with uh, marissa marantino in a couple of episodes time so worth keeping an eye out for that one just before we finish then do you want to just tell us where people can find out a bit more about you or what you're doing like i know you're not working in um shelters at the minute but where can people find out stuff Sure. So I um, do shelter consulting. I'm just kind of launching this as a new avenue of my business uh, branding, I guess, uh, Lawless Dogs. Uh, so they can go to laurielawless.com to find me. Uh, and that's L-A-U-R-I-E-L-A-W-L-E-S-S because um, uh, people spell Lori differently. You can also just go to lawlessdogs.com. It'll bring you to the same place. You can also um, email me. So it's Lori at lawlessdogs.com uh, and Instagram lawlessdog behavior is my handle um so yeah so this, all of them. yeah yeah so i yeah i really appreciate this opportunity to come on here because this is um i've been doing a lot more local consulting but i'm hoping to be able to bring all of this experience i have uh, to other shelters and i'm hoping that lacy will come along for that ride with me <laughs> in the future yeah, at some yeah. point <laughs> that's, that's gonna be part of our my little vacation here is yeah. to, to discuss oh, next cool. steps and how we can collaborate yeah Yeah, and save my dogs. Yeah. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on. I think it's going to be such an important conversation for people to listen to you um, and hopefully uh, act on. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Simplifying Shelter Behaviour. Don't forget to like and follow the podcast for future updates. If you're interested in hearing more free tips and tricks related to working in an animal shelter environment, you can follow us on Facebook at Simplifying Shelter Behaviour.